we don't get to the heart of the fact that there was long ago a coup in this country, a silent coup, where corporations took total control of the process of selecting the leaders in this country, then nothing's going to change. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode plus members-only bonus content, find us on Patreon or visit the Contributes tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from We Are Here, On the Media, Counterspin, Democracy Now!, The Tom Martin Program, and a clip from the documentary All Governments Lie. Let me ask you this. What's wrong with American journalism? That's a big question. Yeah, it is, huh? Uh, how many days do you have? <laughs> we, well, yeah, I, I guess um, – well, let me put it this way. I, I think this film basically establishes or, or follows on with the thesis in that wonderful book written by Noam Chomsky and uh, Professor Edward Herman – um, jointly authored, uh, even though people kind of forget about Herman because Chomsky is such a superstar. But um, the book is called Manufacturing Consent. That is, as Glenn Greenwald says in our film, that manufacturing consent is is kind of like the uh, Rosetta Stone for uh, understanding the, the mainstream media and what's wrong with it. So the thesis of manufacturing consent if I can sum it up, which is difficult to, to get it down to one sentence. But, yeah, go ahead but with that. It's, yeah, it's, it's basically, uh, I would say it, the thesis is that the mainstream corporate media in the United States function as a tacit propaganda arm for powerful government and corporate elites. And, you know, it's it doesn't mean that the journalists working within those institutions like the New York Times consider themselves working for a propaganda arm. Uh, but that's just kind of the way it works out. And, and it is a self-selecting process um, where the journalists working in the mainstream media uh, to get ahead, they know there are certain stories and certain attitudes and behaviors and orthodoxies that they need to accept of what's, you know, what's acceptable in, in journalism and what isn't. And let they, me stop. Uh, let me let me stop you right yeah. there for one second. Give yeah. me a con. I've I've been a journalist for probably for close to twenty years. I've known a number of journalists. Um, there yeah. isn't a single one of them who doesn't think that they pursue truth. Um, not that I. Not who I've met. I agree. They all. They all. They all think they're doing their jobs. They all think they're just doing their jobs. But if you talk to some of them. And I've talked to, for example, I've talked to a, a reporter for the New York Times who uh, saw my film and I saw him afterwards and I said, I hope you don't hate me because we took s some hard shots at the New York Times. And he said, no, are you kidding? We, we complain about this stuff all the time among ourselves. Um, in other words, the journalists themselves know there's a problem. They, I mean, for one thing, most reporters, you know, have a healthy uh, skepticism about their bosses. And uh, so there's nothing new about that. If you've been a reporter, as, as I have, and 
it sounds like you have too. Um, and I have worked in the mainstream media and yeah, everybody's trying to do their jobs, but when people like this guy from the New York times, see all governments lie, they, they, it's not like they, they don't agree that there's something wrong, you know? And, and for example, with the New York times, you know, everybody virtually agrees that they, as, as Bob, uh, sorry, as, uh, Carl Bernstein says in our film, uh, when it came to the journalism being done uh, in the run-up to war in Iraq, the New York Times was among the most egregious because they were um, they were running stories that were planted in their paper, at, uh, you know, by basically Cheney and and the White House that were not true and which they didn't bother really to check out. They were so thrilled that they had this inside scoop, you know, that uh, Saddam Hussein was getting various things that would help him to build a nuclear weapon, according to sources in the White House, that they uh, they went with that. And they, they weren't critical, skeptical, or doing their job as journalists. It is sometimes difficult when you get yourself something, you know, handed to you on the sly, and it's particularly salacious, to not think to yourself, oh, I have got A1 for the next week. Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, that, that is, you know, that is the problem with so-called access journalism, which I guess a lot of beat reporters working in the mainstream media uh, depend on, you know, whether you're covering the White House or whether you're covering City Hall. Uh, you may consider that the last thing you can do is upset the officials in the White House or in City Hall uh, because then you'll lose your access. Uh, Amy Goodman calls that the access of evil. That's clever. Uh, That's which is clever. a pretty good line. Uh, yeah. And, and I mean, it is true. You can't have it both ways. I mean, are you what do you see as your job as a journalist? Uh, you know playing golf with the mayor and then getting some tidbit that he decides to, to throw you or, uh, this is if you're a local reporter, you know, or, or is it your job to investigate where the mayor's getting his money from? Uh, and if, whether that's, you know, that's influencing his decision making or, you know, is that happening with other members of council? All of that kind of stuff is, is way more important than, uh, you know, than the so-called access that is so highly, uh, valued Thanks to a recent change to FCC rules, our right-wing media juggernaut seems poised to grow even stronger. On Monday, the conservative-leaning Sinclair Media put in a bid for $3.9 billion to buy Tribune Media, a purchase that would make Sinclair the largest TV broadcasting company in the country. Paul Fari has been covering the Sinclair bid for the Washington Post. He says the media giant had humble beginnings. Sinclair was founded by a fellow named Julian Sinclair Smith, and he had four sons. 
And his four sons are now the controlling shareholders of this company, which started with, I believe, two small UHF stations in the Baltimore area. They have grown by a series of deals, particularly since 1996 when Congress passed the deregulation law, which expanded the number of stations that broadcasters could own. Sinclair owns, I believe the number now is 173 stations. And most of those stations are in small to middle-sized markets. They don't own a lot of big city stations. The interesting part of the Tribune deal is that they would leap into the top 10 markets, Los Angeles, New York, Dallas, Chicago. They would acquire 42 more stations and give it enormous media power in the country. You can own the stations, and you can have a kind of, I guess, corporate philosophy. And then there is proactively controlling the content on any given news broadcast, let's just say at 5 p.m. in Los Angeles. The many dozens and dozens of Sinclair stations produce their own news, and most of it is local, and most of it is straight up and pretty solid. They win awards. They do all the things that every other news organization does. What Sinclair has done with these many, many stations is they will occasionally order something called a must-run story, one that must run on all of the stations ordered to run it. So during the campaign, they ran stories that were about Donald Trump's reminiscences of 9-11, stories about women campaigning for Donald Trump, and more critical stories about Hillary Clinton. Historically, how pushy has the corporation been? about making sure that its politics are represented on its news shows. Let's go back to 2004 when Sinclair got a lot of criticism from Democrats about a plan to air a documentary that was going to take on the Vietnam War service of candidate John Kerry. It was produced by one of the offshoots of the Swift Boat Group, which was an overtly partisan outfit. And so it was hard to justify on a simply journalistic basis. Democrats complained, as I mentioned, and they backed down from doing it. Fast forward to 2012, Sinclair had a documentary that ran on many of its stations that was very critical of President Obama in his reelection campaign. There was no equivalent documentary about Mitt Romney at the time. 2016 campaign, the many Sinclair stations around the country did numerous interviews, dozens and dozens, with Trump and his surrogates. There was no equivalent series of interviews with Hillary Clinton and her surrogates. Wasn't there a quid pro quo with the Trump campaign for access? You give us access and you can be sure that you're going to get some sort of easy ride? Jared Kushner, in a speech to a business group in New York, said as much, but Sinclair itself denied that there was any such deal in place. They said it was all straight up. We come to the Trump campaign and say we are the local TV newscasters in the various cities he's campaigning in. Please come and give us interviews. Now, I will say it's kind of curious that the Sinclair stations repeatedly got access to Trump. When other stations in the market, very eager to interview Trump and his surrogates, were not able to get that access. So what we're looking at is one company with a history of partisan activism that is going to be in 74% of the U.S. broadcast markets 
offering local news coverage if this goes through. Interestingly, one of the political connections of the Smith family, and particularly David Smith, the former CEO, is Ben Carson. Ben Carson was a neurosurgeon in the Baltimore area and became friendly with the Smith family and particularly David Smith. And they've been kind of a sponsor in some ways of Ben Carson's political career. They put him on these panels on TV and they quoted him extensively. The Sinclair stations were the venue for Ben Carson's campaign announcement back in 2015. And Sinclair has a number of stations in the swing states, Florida, Ohio, Michigan, crucial to the last election. So their power is magnified by the fact that they can reach the most critical voters in those states. That's not the only thing. What, as recently as 10 years ago, was a kind of crummy and declining asset, local TV stations, suddenly are cash cows because of the influx of political spending without limit under Citizens United. This is quite the triple play, not the one the cable companies are trying to sell you on, but a relaxation in media concentration to acquire stations in a hitherto unpermissible percentage of the marketplace fueled by cash permitted by a conservative Supreme Court decision. Yes, all of the above. The thing about the local TV station market is it's very cyclical. But one of the up cycles every two years is political advertising. And if you have a station in those swing states where the presidential campaigns are pouring money in, you have a golden goose. And that's one of the things that is driving Sinclair to acquire some of these stations. So what is your best guess? Is this the biggest block of the right-wing media fortress that is going to now finally stifle straightforward news coverage in this country? Or is it just one more channel in an overall media environment that is just so infinitely large that the effect might be quite muted? Local news is often thought of as the most trustworthy kind of news available to people. That's because it's local. People can see people they know on the air. They can see familiar anchors giving them the news. It's more or less news from down the street. So it has that influence. But remember, you're in an environment where there's lots and lots of competition. It's not the only thing on the air. The question for a public debate is, do we want to hand one company this kind of influence?
Since 2010, the Washington Post has been banking on its pedigree and prestige by putting on Q&A sessions called Post Live with influential Beltway personalities, quarterbacked by a Post columnist or reporter, and, yes, sponsored by corporations directly involved in the topics of discussion. Event sponsors have included Bank of America, Eli Lilly, GlaxoSmithKline, and United Health, among others. The ideological scope of these events, writes Adam Johnson on FAIR.org, ranges from how capitalism and the U.S. military can be more awesome to capitalism and the U.S. military are already awesome. Four events in 2016 titled Securing Tomorrow were sponsored by weapons manufacturer Raytheon and the Center for a New American Security, a D.C. think tank largely funded by weapons contractors, the Defense Department, the Japanese government, and U.S. oil companies. Included, the Post's David Ignatius talking about the military in the first-person plural. Not included, any talk about reducing war or spending on war. Post spokesperson Chris Karate told FAIR the paper draws a hard line between the content of our events, which are developed and run by our newsroom, and our sponsors. Sponsors do not pay our people, nor do they have any say in the programming. Well, except that a representative of Raytheon is actually in the programming, giving remarks. Opening remarks are their own, Karate contended, and not part of the news program. It's unclear what that means or how it would be discerned from the event agenda, which sandwiched the sponsor remarks of Raytheon Vice President Rick Hunt between the welcome remarks of the Washington Post's Vice President of Communications, that's Chris Karate, and the conversation with Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson, all listed in the same typeface. It seems hardly plausible that the Washington Post sees no conflict in hosting a news event called Is Technology Improving Your Health? that's sponsored by Philips, which describes itself as a leading health technology company focused on improving people's health. You'd have to conclude instead that they are fundamentally untroubled by gatherings that, by design, exclude any voices that would meaningfully question corporate sponsors or the state representatives who take part, and that trade on their journalistic credibility to serve as a revenue stream for their parent company. I've told you about LegalZoom before and how they can help you start a business, but that is not nearly all they can do. For instance, it's the last week of National Make-A-Will Month, and that means that now is the time to take control of your family and assets. Preparing for your family's future is one of the most important things you're going to do this summer. Sure, there's a lot to think about, but that's why LegalZoom created an estate planning kit to get you going. Go to LegalZoom.com prepare to get your free kit. You'll get a ton of helpful info, plus legal. Zoom discounts, all the things you need to stop procrastinating and start preparing for your family's future. LegalZoom designed this kit to provide the tools you need all in one place. Whether a will or a trust is right for you, you'll get special LegalZoom discounts plus an estate plan checklist, an ebook, and other info to help you decide. And you can always get advice from LegalZoom's nationwide network of independent attorneys without being billed by the hour, since LegalZoom is not a law firm. There are only a few days left 
in National Make-A-Will Month, so hurry to LegalZoom.com prepare right now. There's no obligation, just great resources to help you protect everything you care about. That's LegalZoom.com prepare. Can you talk about the link between Sinclair Broadcast Group uh, and support for President Trump? Well, they've rolled out the red carpet for President Trump, uh, you know, right after the election. Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law and advisor, indicated that he'd struck a deal with Sinclair for favorable coverage where they would air uh, Trump speaking at length without interruption. Uh, so that's the kind of things that they've allowed. They've hired multiple Trump spokespeople people, uh, mouthpieces from the administration to come on the air, uh, give the administration's views. And, and certainly for years and years now, going all the way back to when they famously aired the Swift Boat Veterans for Truth video uh, that helped sink the candidacy of John Kerry, uh, they have never hesitated, especially around a national election, to put coverage out there that favors their favorite candidate. That candidate is Donald Trump. And from the day after he was elected, Sinclair has been popping champagne bottles because they figured that now they would get it back. This quid pro quo would happen. They gave this great coverage, and now they're coming for their reward, which is the lifting of longstanding limits on media ownership. And more about the CEO, David Smith. Well, David Smith has been a big Republican donor for a long time, building up this network. Uh, he, he, he gives huge amounts of money to Republican candidates and causes. But of course, the most valuable thing they do is actually uh, open up their airwaves to Republican views. And David Smith is a guy who has instructed his company over the years to try to evade as many rules as possible, setting up shell companies to control more stations, uh, trying to do everything they can to get around the Federal Communications Commission's restrictions. But you listen to everything coming out of Sinclair headquarters now, and they're not worried about that anymore. They're not worried about the FCC getting in the way here because it's the FCC who is arranging for them to be able to pull off these mega deals. Could you talk about uh, Armstrong Williams, uh, one of their hosts who got fined for the FCC and how the company reacted to that? Well, yeah, it's really remarkable because here is a guy, Armstrong Williams, actually got caught uh, going on Sinclair and pushing policies while he was on the payroll of the Bush administration as a consultant, but he didn't disclose it. So the FCC actually has fined Sinclair for airing fake news. And yet what Sinclair did is, is not only did they not take Armstrong Williams off the air, uh, they actually promoted him and set him up as the CEO of a front company that allowed them to control and buy more stations. So that tells you a lot about uh, what this company thinks about uh, payola and fake news. So this is very interesting that this is all happening while the Fox empire is kind of in freefall, right? You have O'Reilly out, Roger Ailes out. Can you talk about the significance of this and also what this can mean for election coverage? Well, I, I think you, you hit on it, Amy, it's talking about election coverage, because Sinclair's strategy up to this point has really focused on a lot of swing states, middle America, uh, you know, the Trump team was boasting that Sinclair uh, reached more voters in the state of Ohio than CNN. 
Uh, so they have built up uh, stations all across the country, giving them an incredible reach when it comes to elections, especially reaching older voters who still turn into broadcast television. So uh, in many ways, Sinclair has become a rival to Fox, uh, a giant of media and conservative media in particular. Uh, there were a lot of rumors that Rupert Murdoch was going to try to get in here and try to buy these Tribune stations. Uh, he did not end up bidding. Uh, Fox News Corp did not end up bidding on these stations. And now Sinclair will be by far the biggest uh, chain in the country, again, pushing that political agenda. It's an incredible amount of media power in in one company. Uh, now, Craig, this purchase is only made possible because of changes in ownership uh, rules that, uh, that uh, Ajit Pai introduced. Why are these rules even important these days? Some, some people would say, well, with the spread of the Internet and social media, uh, television, broadcast television is less important these days. Uh, why is it so important to maintain these limitations on ownership? Well, well, there's no question that the media landscape is changing. And, and for many of us, there are new places to get news and information. But local TV news is still the number one source for news, uh, the number one source people have for information on local politics. Uh, and there are many people who don't have access to high-speed Internet service. And, and their best chance to find out what's happening in their communities is going to be over the public airwaves. And that's why it's so important that we actually have a diversity of voices uh, committed to local communities on these airwaves. That's why these rules were established, was so that you'd have competing ideas. It's fine to have a conservative broadcaster. It's not fine to just have a conservative broadcaster on your airwaves. And local ownership, diversity of ownership, ensures a diversity of viewpoints. And uh, it's, it's really key to just having an informed citizenry and a functioning democracy. And what the FCC has done here is truly scandalous, because what they've actually done is they've gone back and reinstated outdated rules just to make it appear uh, in FCC land like Sinclair doesn't own as many TV stations as they actually do. If they get this deal done in all their pending deals, Sinclair will reach 72 percent of the U.S. population. The federal limit on one company is supposed to be 39 percent. So the FCC went in and actually put back an old rule that is now meaningless from a technical standpoint to discount how the FCC looks at the number of stations they own. So it looks like they own uh, half as many stations as they actually do, which is the way they're paving the way for this deal. And if you, you listen to what Sinclair is saying, they expect the FCC to follow up and get rid of other limits and other restrictions as well. And in fact, at that May 18th FCC meeting, uh, the FCC is putting out a public notice to start uh, the review of ownership rules once again. So at a time where we need more local news, more competition, more choices, better informed communities, what we're getting is the same cookie cutter content coast to coast. Bill watching Free Speech TV in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Bill, what's on your mind today? Uh, there's a corporation now called uh, Sinclair, and they're buying up uh, uh, local radio stations. Uh, yeah, uh, television stations, actually. Television stations. Yeah, they're, they're set yeah. to become the largest independent single owner of television stations in the United States. 
is there any hope for us? <laughs> um, you know, I was just reading, actually, there's an amazing book called America's Mat Battle for Media Democracy, The Triumph of Corporate Libertarianism and the Future of Media Reform by Victor Pickard, or Picard. And I was, uh, for our daily book report for the, the Tom Hartman University book club that, you know, we put on, on our free speech TV feed, I was going to read a piece from this book. The problem is it's written in a fairly dry fashion, and it was hard to find, you know, just the three pages I could boil down to a four-minute read. But um, in the 40s, and I hadn't known this, in the 40s, FDR was flipped out about the possibility that newspapers could own radio stations. This was before television. And, and was putting into place through the FCC these very, very strong cross-ownership laws and did not want anybody to be able to own more than seven or eight radio stations around the country and certainly not in the same area. I mean, he was and, and explicitly concerned that if the media got turned into a monopoly, essentially, or large, you know, a largely functionally a monopoly, that it would become a right wing monopoly and it would be used to stop progressive actions by the government. And I mean, he just completely explicitly clear about that and that's where we are at right now we have we have media monopolies in the united states that are doing everything they can to prevent any kind of meaningful message from getting out it's why the average american doesn't have any idea what's in the republican tax cut bill the average american doesn't doesn't realize that the so-called streams rule that 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 the republicans just blew up was protecting our waterways doesn't realize that you know trump's first action uh, as as president was to allow coal mining corporations to dump more poison in the rivers uh, the, that are the water supplies for people who mine coal. I mean, it just goes on and on. People don't know what's going on because they're not being told what's going on because our media focuses on these bumper sticker stories. So, uh, Bill, I, I, I think we're there. Well, it's a shame because, you know, local news, people don't even know they're being swayed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And Sinclair has these must run shows. Uh, these uh, two, three, four-minute political commentaries that they insert into their programming or into their newscasts, and and they spin their news to the right. I mean, it's like you know they're they're wannabe Fox, except in many ways they're far more insidious than Fox. Is more people watch local news and more people believe local news than believe Fox. I mean, Fox has become kind of a cult following. But I, I agree with you, Bill. And there, there's some really good reporting that was done on this uh, that you can find over at uh, alternet.org. But I'm sure it's it's in other places as well. But it's it's a big issue. It's a big concern. And I've I've seen this happen in my lifetime. You know, when I started in radio in Lansing, Michigan, there were seven stations in town, and every single one was locally owned, different local families. And now I'd be astonished if there's a single station that's locally owned. Sinclair Broadcasting Group is already the largest owner of television stations around the country, with some 173, but it's looking to increase that dominance by taking over Tribune Media, which owns stations in key markets like New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago. 
The deal would mean Sinclair would own more than 220 stations, reaching some 72 percent of U.S. TV households. Time was a single company controlling so much would raise alarms by itself, especially in a society that claims to value competition. But now, critics like Jack Schaefer say complaints about super-concentrated media ownership reek of stupidity, because after all, there's Netflix and Hulu and Amazon. No matter that vast numbers of Americans rely on local news as a primary way of learning about the world, or that the existence of multiple sectors is not an argument for a lack of diversity in one sector— it's as if to say, it's okay that school textbooks are biased, because after all, there are cookbooks and comic books, too. But if any company dominating the country's local news would be worrisome, those worries are compounded when it comes to Sinclair. Because of that company's pronounced ideological bent, their track record, and the means by which they appear to be getting their way. Here to fill us in on the situation is Craig Aaron. He's president of the group Free Press. He joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Counterspin, Craig Aaron. Oh, thanks for having me back. Well, perhaps before we talk about Sinclair becoming more powerful, we talk about what they've done with the power they already have. What should we know about this company? Well, I think what you need to know about Sinclair is this is, first of all, a huge company. They already own more individual local television stations than any other company in the country. They're already at the supposed national cap for how many stations one company should be allowed to own. But Sinclair in particular has used their network to both push cookie-cutter content but that content with a very, very conservative slant. This is a company with a very strong ideological agenda, and they push to all of their affiliates a series of conservative commentators who are must-runs for all those stations. They have to put them on the air. And they have a long history of using their media power to push a conservative agenda and especially a Republican Party agenda. You know, this goes back at least as far as their decision to run the Swift Boat Veterans for Truth video that was an attack, essentially a feature-length attack ad on John Kerry when he was running for president. And there are numerous instances since then where they have used the public airwaves to push a very, very partisan agenda. Well, yeah, the familiar argument from some quarters is that uh, Sinclair's in-your-face right-wing views actually represent an influx of diversity in media. That relies on a rarely examined assumption that all other media represent an equally staunch liberalism that needs countering, and then a never-explained assumption that liberalism means, you know, believing Muslims or gay people have human rights. Schaefer actually offers as an example of the kind of unique viewpoint that deserves amplification the fact that Sinclair made its ABC affiliates cancel Nightline when that show named the U.S. service people killed in the Iraq War. So we aren't talking about stations having roundtables in which conservatives have a voice. We're hearing about, as, as you intimate, about folks who are watching the local news that they've watched for years. And then what's that? Suddenly you're watching something called the Terrorism Alert Desk, you know, and it's talking about how France might ban Muslim women's bathing suits. 
Right, exactly. This is what they've sort of specialized in is this kind of fear-mongering coverage. Here come the graphics announcing terrorism alert desk, but then strangely, the stories are just about Muslims as if those were the same thing. This is a station that's been caught doctoring audio to make it sound like anti-police brutality protesters were chanting, kill a cop, when they were chanting, you know, put killer cops in jail. There's so many of these instances that have happened on Sinclair stations that they aren't anomalies. They are only offering one hard right slant in their commentary, which they mix in, of course, with your normal traffic and weather and car crashes and local government stories. But anytime it comes to covering national politics, national news, they're putting a very hard slant on that. Might be your local anchor sometimes reading the lead into a script, but very often you're getting centrally produced political programming pushing an agenda. And moreover, I think to Jack Schaefer's points, what I always recommend when you look at what these companies are doing is you look at what they actually tell their investors. And what Sinclair is saying is not hey, look, we're going out there to offer an alternative viewpoint. What they're saying is we're going to try to take over as much local news as we can. And they're aggressively pursuing an agenda, not only to reach more than 70% of the country they'll, they'll get if this deal goes through, but then to begin start swapping and trading stations at the local level so that they can operate two, three, four stations in a given market, benefit from all that shared back end and domination of advertising to actually push the same content out on multiple stations. This has long been their model. They've set up a bunch of shell companies to carry this out. But now under the Trump administration, they've sort of come out of hiding and pretending, and they're just going for it. Well, let me ask you uh, about that relationship to Trump. But I, I first wanted to say, yeah, the CEO of Sinclair, I understand, has been quoted saying, right now there are three to five local players, and to us that doesn't make sense. I mean, it seems an assault on localism per se before you even get to the ideological Peace. Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, that's their business agenda. And I think that is also what blows up all these arguments. But, oh, we have so many choices for media today. And that might be true in some senses around entertainment, but it's absolutely not true when it comes to local news. Still by far the number one source of news and information for people at the local level. And you've got one newsroom broadcasting on multiple stations. There's no one out there competing for stories. There's no diversity of viewpoints being put forward. That's incredibly damaging at that local level where it's needed the most. Well, now, Sinclair is not just ideologically sharing a worldview with Donald Trump. The relationship goes rather deeper than that, doesn't it? It absolutely does. You know, this is a company that is essentially producing Trump TV, um, at least in terms of the national programming and the must-runs. There are, of course, good journalists at all these local stations just trying to do their jobs and report what's happening in the local community, but it is interspersed with essentially Republican Party talking points. And, you know, after the election, Jared Kushner somewhat infamously acknowledged that he had a deal, as he called it, with Sinclair to offer sort of uncut access to the Sinclair airwaves for Trump. Sinclair will tell you, oh, we offered the same deal to Hillary Clinton, but strangely only Donald Trump took them up on it. 
And they've gone out of their way to hire former Trump campaign folks like Boris Epstein, uh, who is now their top political commentator, who essentially operates as an extension of the White House. So we have a situation where you've got a network absolutely going to bat for the Republican Party, taking it upon itself, using all the same talking points and language that Trump does on fake news to essentially offer an alternative narrative about what's actually happening in Washington, attacking other journalistic outlets for aggressively covering the president, saying the Russia stuff is no big deal, and on and on and on, trumpeting Trump, then turning around and saying, okay, we're here for our policy favors. We have a long wish list of limits on media ownership and other regulations that we'd like to get rid of, and the Trump administration actually making that a priority, either by loosening the rules or, in one case, actually reinstating a regulation the Obama administration got rid of in order to allow Sinclair to pretend its national reach, at least when they're at the FCC, to pretend that their national reach isn't as big as it actually is. Now, I understand that even those who might be assumed to share their worldview are against this merger, other companies, and that's for different reasons. But still, you have other sort of what we might call right-wing outlets who themselves oppose the merger. That's right. A number of groups filed formal challenges to the merger, including my group, Free Press, but also Newsmax, some local newspaper publishers, Dish Television. But it's been interesting to see the critique coming from the right, which I think rightfully recognizes this is just too much media power in one company's hands. And they know that if Sinclair is allowed to have this dominance over local television, then they're going to use all of that money, all of that income to move into other markets. They have an online news service called Circa. Once they start making all this money from these big markets, from what's called retransmission consent negotiations, which allows cable companies to carry local broadcast stations from all the political ads, they're going to pour that in to undercutting their competitors on the right, even where there's ideological alignment. And I think, you know, what you're seeing here, and you're seeing this on the right and the left right now, is just growing concern about too much media power, growing appreciation of just how seriously we need to get about antitrust and other limits on one company getting so big that others can no longer afford to compete. And that's one of the things that's at risk if a deal like this is allowed to go through, especially because what will happen is it will inspire other companies to do their own deals to try to catch up. So you're going to see the next stars and the foxes of the world suddenly saying, oh, well, Sinclair's got 200 stations. Maybe we need 200 stations as well. And suddenly you have even fewer choices at the local level. And those few remaining independent stations are finding it really hard to compete against the scale that these behemoths can offer to advertisers and others. Well, let me just ask you, if power buys voice, and this does look a lot like favor trading, you know, uh, where does dissent get air? And how do we fight this? And can we continue to fight it, even if the merger goes through? Well, I think we're going to have to continue to fight it. The first step is to try to uh, push back at the Federal Communications Commission, and public comment is still open, and people can go to freepress.net. I urge them to file comments, letting the commission know about their concerns. But ultimately, this is a matter that Congress and others are going to have to look at. That's going to be one of the key ways to push back here as we look at what is it going to take. It doesn't feel like these conversations are possible in the era of Donald Trump, but they're the ones we need to start having now is – 
what is it going to take to break up some of these media behemoths? This is absolutely going in the wrong direction, and I think you see a lot of signs. All this concern on the right, you can look at what's happening in democratic circles where suddenly antitrust is at the center of the platforms that they're putting out there. We need to start moving in that direction to stop just rubber stamping these deals and start demanding that we need more local choices, more local accountability, more support for public and independent alternatives. Because if we just allow these guys to merge and merge and merge, we'll be stuck with the same cookie cutter content wherever we go. And it's going to be very, very conservative, if not reactionary, if somebody doesn't step in. Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country, and for less than 10 bucks a meal, they deliver seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients right to your door. One of their key features is that they are completely flexible, so you can dial in your dietary restrictions, which is key for vegetarians or those looking to cut down on their meat intake, and you can also customize your recipes from a slate of choices each week and choose a delivery option that fits your needs. And I gotta say, I make use of these features on a regular basis. Maybe it's a control thing, I don't know, but it is good to be able to choose exactly what I'm getting and when it's arriving each week. Plus, you can't go wrong with Blue Apron's freshness guarantee, which promises that every ingredient arrives ready to cook or they'll make it right. A couple things they're cooking up this month include sautéed shrimp and green beans with globe tomatoes, spinach and orzo pasta, and whole grain pasta and summer vegetables with heirloom tomato caprese salad. So check out this week's menu for yourself and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash best. You are going to love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash best. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. If you go step back and look at the bigger picture, fundamentally the empire is not afraid of anyone really that's running for office, whether it's the Democrat or the Republican that wins, uh, the core institutions that necessitate a brutal military force that backs up the, the sort of you know, velvet-gloved hand of the free market is, is a given with every single person that runs for office or can get the nomination of those parties. So you know, even if you have someone that in the general election is perceived to be uh, you know, crazy, once they, they sort of get, start getting those briefings from the permanent power structure, the intelligence community, they all step into line. If we don't get to the heart of the fact that there was long ago a coup in this country, uh, a silent coup, where corporations took total control of the process of selecting the leaders in this country, then nothing's going to change. When a journalism school, you're taught to be objective. An objective means re report accurately what's going on within the beltway, so inside the system of power. If you report that accurately, you're objective. If you go outside that, you're biased. Uh, well, plenty of things outside that. This is a narrow, concentrated power system. And one of my favorite lines from any film is from the film uh, The Usual Suspects. You know, Kevin Spacey, amazing as Kaiser Sose. But at the end of the film, he says, 
the greatest trick the devil ever pulled. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Was convincing the world he didn't exist. You know, you've got crazy people thinking that the Department of Homeland Security is going to put them in a FEMA camp somewhere. You have other people thinking that Obama's going to come and take their guns. That's all a sideshow. That's all a total sideshow. The coup already happened, and the most brilliant part about it is none of these people seem to realize it. This week, defamation in the news was back in the news. On Wednesday, suspended Fox News host Eric Bolling, who is under investigation for allegedly sending graphic pictures to female colleagues, is suing the journalist who first broke the story. Bolling is suing journalist Yashar Ali Hedayat for defamation and is seeking $50 million in damages. The sex and celebrity have a familiar ring and also the eye-popping demand of $50 million in the wake of last year's $140 million jury award to pro wrestling legend Hulk Hogan. Hogan, whose real name is Terry Bollea, is suing Gawker for $100 million over its release of a sex tape that shows the Hulk having sex with the former wife of radio shock jock Bubba the Love Sponge. A jury signs with Hulk Hogan, awarding him $115 million in his sex tape lawsuit against the website Gawker. The 14-year-old company went into bankruptcy after the judgment and was sold to Univision. Gawker the Huffington Post can't be thrilled to recall how quickly jurors voted to give a smarty pants New York media company its comeuppance. But here's the critical difference. As far as anyone knows, Eric Bowling is underwriting his own case. The Gawker case was bankrolled by a third party, Silicon Valley billionaire Peter Thiel, in vengeance for Gawker's outing of him years earlier. He anonymously used Hogan's claim and the court system to wage his own private battle. In the documentary Nobody Speak, Trials of the Free Press, filmmaker Brian Knappenberger deconstructs the morality play that was the Gawker case, but then pulls back to observe a larger pattern, the use of big money to subvert, chill, manipulate, and punish a free press, from a Florida courtroom to the White House. I was really fascinated by... What was happening in that courtroom, that even though it had this veneer of tabloid sensationalism, it was pretty clear there was some big-picture First Amendment versus privacy issues at stake. In the movie, you make the point that Teal's involvement was so sinister that people at Gawker were saying, there's something odd going on here, and Nick Denton, the principal behind this, just simply refused to believe that it could get that dark. We had a suspicion that it was, there was somebody. This has cost $13 million in legal fees for us. So far. It suggests that there's another agenda. Some of the lawyers would occasionally raise this possibility with me. Nick refused to believe it because he didn't want to get wrapped up in any kind of conspiracy theories. From my perspective, it was a, a sense of, like, creeping dread. We felt that there was something bigger going on here. The media was on trial. And eventually they start to believe that there is somebody. And then, actually, the New York Times breaks the story that 
that's true, that somebody was funding it, and then Forbes comes in and reveals that it's Peter Thiel. The lawyering that Peter Thiel bought was <laughs> top drawer. There's a point that we learn that they actually reduced their claims in the case for the specific reason of making sure that they could inflict the most pain not only on the corporation, Gawker Media, but on the founder and CEO, Nick Denton, and other editors at the publications. Yeah, absolutely. Bizarre series of events. Because, you know, you'd think that if Hogan was going for the biggest financial payoff, they would just throw everything at the wall and see what stuck. But what they realized was that dropping the account actually let the insurers off the hook for insuring Gawker should there be a big damage. So the full weight of the judgment would fall on Gawker and on the writers. That is something that you wouldn't do if you were Hogan's team and you wanted to get the most money, but it's something that you would do if you wanted to kill Gawker. The lawyers were able to persuade the jury that Hulk Hogan was macho and kind of superhuman, but poor Terry Bollea, the wrestler's actual name, was actually crushed emotionally and embarrassed by the tape. Yeah, this leads to really one of the most fascinating parts of the trial, I think, and that is since Gawker made the case that Hulk Hogan had talked about his sex life so graphically on Howard Stern and other shows, that this was uh, in some ways fair game. He's a public figure who brought this up himself. So the Hogan defense came up with something that they hadn't presented before, and that was to really draw a line between Terry Bollea, the private individual, and Hulk Hogan, the public person. And that distinction got very, very weird. I can attest. <laughs> it got very, very weird. And so uh, essentially it came down to a passage where he was bragging about his 10-inch penis. And in the courtroom, when he was asked about this, he said, well, Hulk Hogan is 10 inches, and Terry Bollea, well, not so much. And weirdly, that became a distinguishing factor between this idea of a public persona and a personal one. And it's a very strange thing when you talk to people about this. I mean, you're, you're allowed what they call puffery, which is the promotion of a commercial. You're allowed to kind of um, exaggerate a little bit. It's weird as we're cutting this at the same time, you know, you have this rise of Donald Trump who you know, at the time was actually being accused of making all of these misogynistic remarks and, and all this stuff. And some of his surrogates basically stepped forward and said, those are things he said as a television personality. That's not how he really feels. So it was a similar kind of distinction being made. And I guess you're left wondering, as a journalist, what do you do with that? When is a public figure to be held accountable? For the moment, let's pull back from the details of the litigation and to its significance, and that is a third party with endlessly deep pockets using a court case to seek his own private justice. I think we should be afraid that what Peter Thiel did could be a blueprint for other people. It does seem to have empowered a bunch of lawsuits. If you think about what we've seen just in the last couple of months, I mean, we've seen this lawsuit against John Oliver by this coal magnate. We've seen Sarah Palin using some of the Hogan lawyers in order to sue the New York Times. A story that we actually cut out of the film was the story of Mother Jones magazine and a Idaho billionaire, Frank Vandersloot, who tried to put them out of business. And ultimately, the readers of Mother Jones and others were able to raise enough money to actually push it back, and they won that case. But I do think that there's something new going on here in terms of this secretive 
funding of a case to silence a journalist. Now, I'm careful when I say that because, you know, very wealthy individuals and organizations and others have funded court cases before. But as I understand it, it used to be illegal to secretly fund court cases up until the late 50s. This goes back, I guess, all the way to common law. This is a legal term called champerty. And the reason why this was overturned is a pushback against the NAACP, who was backing cases in that time period about segregation. And this was a way of kind of thwarting their lawsuits like Brown versus Board of Education and others. So I think there's something very different here between NAACP or the ACLU or, you know, Greenpeace funding a lawsuit where you know that it's them and you know what their political position is. There's something different between that and, and what Teal did here, a single individual with an axe to grind that is not transparent to anybody. Now, this isn't taken up in your film, but is there any kind of appeal underway? No, there isn't an appeal, and uh, the cases at this point have actually settled. I want to talk about the last third of the movie, which moves into other examples of big money stifling independent reporting. You make the case that a scary pattern is forming. Let's start with Sheldon Adelson's secret takeover of the Las Vegas Review-Journal. What happened there? This is, I think, just a fascinating story where the reporters at the Las Vegas Review-Journal were informed that their paper had been purchased. So they asked, well, who is it and what are their expectations? And they were told not to worry about it. And they find out that the new mystery owner is Sheldon Adelson, who is probably the richest man in Nevada and is a very, very big Republican donor who has been in battles with the Review Journal for decades. Uh, He just doesn't like the paper and its reporters. And now he's the boss. Well, it's a it's a pretty harrowing story when they figure this out. There's an amazing moment where they, they actually have the story ready and they're about to publish it and they're waiting around for a yes or no, you know, should we do this or not, from the murky upper management. And they don't get a yes or no or a maybe or anything. And at some point, finally they say, okay, let's just do this. And they do it without any kind of approval, knowing that it might they might lose their jobs in the process. So a lot of them forced to resign. It takes off close to 100 reporters that may have said something that Sheldon Adelson doesn't like. There's one particularly poignant story about a guy who had been a burr in Adelson's saddle for some time who uh, wound up with a sick kid. Tell me about it. So John L. Smith, who's a really beloved uh, columnist in Las Vegas and in Nevada, he wrote a book called Sharks in the Desert, and Mr. Addison took exception to one of the passages in that book and sued him. And he got this news right as he was dealing with his daughter had cancer. And basically, an intermediary allegedly comes to John Smith and gives him an offer for a six-figure sum to handle some of his daughter's medical expenses on the condition that John L. Smith admits that he libeled him. And um, John L. Smith turns this down, and he ends up um, sticking with the case, and he, and he ends up winning his case. And the daughter? Daughter is okay. But he's no longer working at the Las Vegas Review-Journal. He does not. All right, this is America. Historically, rich people buy newspapers, and they mm-hmm. use them to flog their own politics, their own values, their own personal interests. There's nothing new about that. Why is the Adelson case so concerning? It's the secrecy. And it's the same thing that bothers me about the Teal example. That combined with the fact that 
we're in a kind of new period now in which inequality has gotten so staggering. It's been growing for decades. And you pair that with the fact that media in general has become so vulnerable, particularly independent watchdog journalism, uh, has lost a lot of its revenue and financial underpinnings to the internet and to others, while the uber-rich have gotten much, much richer and much more powerful. So that's the moment that I'm trying to describe here. There's a third element in Nobody Speak. After the Hogan trial, after Adelson and the Review Journal, you explore uh, another billionaire and his impact on free expression. Yeah, you may have heard about him. Yeah, tell me about Trump <laughs> and how this figures in. Well, he kind of inserted himself into my film. We're in the middle of making this film about Hulk Hogan Gawker and understanding Peter Thiel and this ability of billionaires to wage litigation against the press. And here's this highly litigious, thin-skinned billionaire who is gaining momentum, at least at that point in the Republican side. I mean, whipping his crowds at his rallies and speeches into a kind of frenzy and pointing at the media and the cameras in the background and saying, oh, you, these are scum, they're horrible people and all of this stuff. Blacklisting some news organizations, Washington Post, BuzzFeed and others from getting press credentials in the usual way. So these things seem to connect in a way that looked at a kind of bigger picture of media in America. The proper question for me to ask you now is how these three threads, Hogan, Adelson, and Trump, uh, woven together, presage something particularly bad. But actually, you address that very question in your film. You talk to uh, NYU professor Jay Rosen. I think the common thread among the Peter Thiel story, the Adelson story, and the Trump story is billionaires who are proclaiming we are not vulnerable to truth. We are invulnerable to the facts. And it simply doesn't matter what you say, what the press does. We are more powerful than the truth. I found that statement by Jay to be very powerful. I do think that's essentially what we're facing now, this notion that the truth doesn't matter if you're rich enough. We see Sinclair Broadcasting, which apparently struck up a deal with Trump for quote-unquote fairer coverage, buying up local TV stations across the country, apparently becoming the biggest owner of local TV in the United States. So you have this use of money to sort of consolidate and control the media, which controls public opinion. There's a lot of reasons to be concerned if you're a fan uh, or believe in the fourth estate. We've just heard clips today, starting with the show We Are Here, discussing the documentary All Governments Lie. On the media laid out the growing reach of conservative media and the Sinclair Broadcast Group. Counterspin highlighted how sponsors are able to underwrite their own puff pieces in the media. Democracy Now! discussed the role of relaxed regulations and the corporate-friendly FCC that's paving the way for Sinclair's media consolidation. The Tom Hartman program looked back at FDR's concerns about media consolidation. 
Bunker Spin discuss the deep ties that Sinclair has with Trump and the conservative movement more broadly. We heard a clip from the documentary All Governments Lie, featuring Jeremy Scahill describing the silent coup that most people don't realize has already happened. And finally, we just heard on the media discuss the film Nobody Speak that ties together the issues of media consolidation, billionaire influence, and the rising tide of anti-journalism fervor that Trump has spearheaded. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, this is Kevin in Louisiana. Just listened to your Confronting Fascism show, which is uh, kind of coincidental because I confronted fascism in my own house the other day. My father is pretty fascist himself. Uh, he's never been a violent person, but he always has held pretty fascist, racist beliefs. And um, it's a pretty interesting debate the country's been having about free speech because uh, I just banned his fascist speech in my house, <laughs> which I've always kind of debated back and forth, that kind of speech, I guess. Um, I believe in free speech, but I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of rethinking the whole idea of, of hate speech being protected under free speech. Still kind of struggling with that one. So anyway, just thought I'd share. Take care. Hi, Jay. Uh, this is Dave from Olympia, Washington. I am still slogging through backlog this weekend. I, I just finished the episode that it broached the idea of free speech fundamentalism as that's such an odd juxtaposition. The idea that free speech is a value that should be protected at all costs and everything else should be subservient to that ultimate good. So over the years, I have become, I don't know, a, a decade ago, I was very negative around ideas of religion. And I've, I think I've grown it's not religion per se, it's fundamentalism. It's an idea of anything being absolutist. Wahhabism, uh, ideology within Islam, is, is dangerous because it's fanatical, not because it's an Islamic strain, because it's a fanatical strain of Islam that holds certain things to be absolutely paramount and everything else in society has to bow to that idea. White supremacy is the same way. It's an absolutist ideal that, that there is one race and everything else must bow uh, to, to that value. And any fundamentalist ideology is fundamentally flawed and dangerous, including a fundamentalism around an idea which is ostensibly good. I mean, I'm in support of free speech. I don't think it should be never respected, but to hold it over everything is simply wrong. If you want to get a little more analytical, there's a recent Rationally Speaking podcast, and they looked at kind of logical impossibilities and infinities. Uh, I think a classic example is, oh, I just blanked, the, uh, the bet around the existence of heaven, you know, because there's the infinite possibility of infinite bliss versus infinite pain if you're wrong. Even if it's very, very, very unlikely that you're right, it's, it's to your benefit to believe in God on the off chance that they actually exist so you can get into heaven. One of the takeaways for me was the weirdness that comes in whenever there's an, an infinity involved in an equation. Everything else becomes zero. They're not solvable in normal mathematical 
calculations because they, they go to limit, they become undefined, they're not normal equations. And so when anything becomes absolute, including the value of free speech, what that function means is that everything else in society becomes worthless. You probably don't mean it, but what you're saying when you say you're a fundamentalist for free speech is you're saying that nothing else has any value. Civil society, money in politics, rights for anybody, a working justice system, clean air, clean water, protection of the environment, every other thing in society is, is worthless. And I'm certain that's not what people mean. They mean they just put a very high value on free speech, but that's the literal meaning of the words they're using when they're saying that it's a fundamentalist and that it's you know a, an absolute right which should never be broached. For all those reasons, I am incredibly skeptical of even the concept of fundamentalism, even words which imply it in conversation like all or never. I try to expunge from my working vocabulary because they're not actually useful at either conveying information or in conducting any sort of positive social interaction that means of communication. This one you can try out for yourself. It's a little experiment. Use the phrase, you always, to start any conversation with your spouse, housemate, somebody close to you, and see how that conversation goes. Or you, blah, 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 all the time. You know, be absolutist about any statement. And so first of all, you're wrong because nobody is 100%. But secondly, you're gonna engender like immediate negative pushback from that person uh, and meet massive resistance. So fundamentalism, bad in, in all cases. Uh, maybe I'm a fundamentalist about that, which that's a contradiction. As always, Jay, thank you so much for the show. Stay awesome. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, I'm glad that we just heard from Dave talking about free speech fundamentalism because it gives me an excuse to circle back around to this conversation. Uh, you may recall in the previous episode, my comments were basically just just a collection of quotes and, and excerpts of what other people had said, just things that I thought it was worth it for you to hear. But I didn't even get to fit in everything I, I would have liked to tell you about. And so there was this one last piece. This is actually an email from a listener, Brian, and uh, he just makes this really interesting point. And uh, like I said, I didn't have time for it before, but it's on free speech fundamentalism, and, and uh, I'm glad to be able to come back around to it. Uh, just to sort of tack on to today's point, like, it doesn't seem that confusing to me. The, the idea that fundamentalism in any of these sort of policy prescriptions is going to take you down a, a bad road. You know, you have the people who have like some evidence that sometimes taxes can be too high. So then they say, if you lower the taxes from when they're too high, then that's better. And then other people are like, okay, great. If a little bit less taxes is good, then zero taxes must be the best. And that's ridiculous. And But it's as ridiculous as the reverse, is to say, like, well, sometimes taxes need to be a little bit higher and society runs a little bit, bit better. 
with higher taxes, no one should then think, okay, great, if a little bit higher is better, well, then taxing everyone at 100% should be the best. That's absurd on its face. Uh, Same with basically any kind of regulation. Uh, You know, there are times when clearly regulations need to be in place and society runs better with regulations in place. No one should then think, well, great, what we need is for every minute aspect of everyone's life and every aspect of society to be regulated as much as possible. That's ridiculous. But the reverse is also ridiculous. Just because you find some regulations that turn out to be overburdensome or don't really do what they set out to do, maybe it makes sense for some regulations to be repealed. That does not mean then that, well, what we really need is a society with our regulations. It's, again, absurd on its face. So we take that logic to uh, uh, to free speech, and I think we can all agree, like, free speech is a pretty good thing. We like being able to say what we want to say. That doesn't necessarily then follow that 100% free speech in every aspect is the best way to run society. And it, that's not even that controversial because we already have laws against certain types of types of speech that cause harm. And, and so, you know, we're not really having a debate about whether or not to be fundamentalist about it. Uh, we're just trying to figure out where to draw the line. But the problem with free speech is a lot of people don't understand what it means or, or how it's actually implemented. And they don't even understand that we have laws against certain types types of speech. They just sort of put that in a different category, and then they put a bunch of things that don't fall under free speech under there, and they say, like, hey, if I'm not allowed to, uh, you know, say terrible things on my radio show without my parent company firing me, then that's taking away my free speech. No, that's not how that works in any fashion. But to get back to Brian's email, he takes this the same concept and applies it not just to free speech, but to science. Now, science, something I think a lot of us can get behind. Uh, we're, we're pretty much in favor of science in general, and we will endorse the fact that it works. It is a system that produces accurate results, and those results continue to get more accurate over time. We don't have to explain science. So uh, this is what Brian says about the the connection between free speech and science. So Brian said, I use the term philosophically true free speech in the same sense as, say, philosophically true solipsism. Strict solipsism holds that nothing outside your own mind exists, which is clearly false. Yet, one of the core philosophies of science is a weak solipsism, otherwise called methodological solipsism. And science works. In this sense, you might call the propagandistic view on free speech to be the strict free speech, while Canada's perspective on free speech is weak free speech. I think uh, Brian is from Canada. He continues, also, for clarification, I do not feel that Canada's system is necessarily better. I'm just using it as an example of a country that is stereotypically seen as more progressive than the U.S. that nonetheless has a restriction on free speech. If there's any slippery slope here, we're smiling happily from a stable spot downhill. So again, just to put a finer point on that, basically the idea that in science, 
you can't trust anything unless it can be observed and proven to be true, and then you build a foundation of knowledge on those proven facts. But if you take that to an absurd extreme, the you know the so-called strict solipsism, well, then you end up stuck. You can't do anything. You can't prove that anything's true because you can't technically prove that anything outside your own mind is true. And so then everything is stymied. But you take that back just a step or two, and everything flows smoothly. And I, I think it's an apt comparison to say that free speech, in a similar way, honestly works better when it has just the right amount of restriction. But as with taxes or regulation or anything else, anyone who then follows that with, well, if a little restriction is good, then a lot of restriction is better, is, is going down the wrong path and is misunderstanding completely. So if you have thoughts on this, it is certainly not too late to keep the calls coming in at 202-999-3991. I want to thank a couple more uh, Social Justice Warrior members who have signed up recently, Jonathan R. and our newest member, Sandra A. Uh, so huge thanks to all of the members, Social Justice Warrior level or otherwise, uh, for keeping the show going. And here's just a quick interesting note or doesn't matter if it's interesting or not. It's just a, a real note that is, it's important. That's what it is. It's an important note about Patreon. This Patreon is our new system that's managing all of the new member signups and, and everything. And, um, the way Patreon works is that you can make a pledge anytime, right? That's, that's normal. You sign up on any day, you get put in the system, but your card doesn't get charged until the first of every given month. So here we are at the end of the month, and I just want to say, if you're considering signing up, and you're like, oh yeah, Jay's been talking about Patreon or you know, the memberships and all that, I would just say it would do me a huge favor. If you're thinking about signing up, go ahead and try to sign up before the end of the month, because then you'll be charged you know, at the beginning of September, whereas if you wait just a couple more days, all of a sudden, you may sign up, you may want to give a donation through Patreon, but it turns out you won't be charged until October. So just in terms of helping the show out and, you know, if you want to uh, send us some money through Patreon, now's a good time to sign up to make sure that charge actually goes through soon. Now that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. And of course, to all of those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size on patreon.com. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past our stories and forget how to listen we can't see past our own sad stories and one